0: It's the third last day at COP27. And while it may be too early to make significant conclusions, there is some significant something significant happening in the desert. I think I'm going to be classifying this COP as the quiet achiever, given that there were certainly less stage gates than COP26. And overall, it was billed as a smaller conference, and there are certainly less flashy headline, but in terms of its goals of focusing on how to get to net zero without greenwashing, um, starting to reform international financial institutions and seeing some evidence of how we're getting private finance flowing as well as strengthening voluntary carbon markets, I think it all seems to be progressing. You're listening to Katrina King, General Manager of Capital Solutions, and we've been privileged to have QIC's Dr. Sebastian Thomas on the ground in Sharm El Sheikh, interpreting the panels, the negotiation halls, and those all-important corridor chats for us. Sebastian has just wound up on Society Day and has introduced me to a new concept, smart specialisation. Hey, Sebastian.
1: Hey, Katrina. How are you?
0: Good. Can you unpack this new alliteration for me? Smart specialisation and its context for climate change.
1: Sure. Smart specialisation is an idea that's been in the scientific literature for um, 10 or 20 years. And it's really come to fruition in places like Germany. Uh, Germany's a a country that's had a strong traditional reliance on uh, coal-fired power. They made the decision to purposeful and deliberate energy transition in German, it's called the energy vendor. So the idea of smart specialisation is that rather than allowing things to progress unevenly or randomly or chaotically, uh, you look around and say, what have we got? What's our traditional uh, industrial base or uh, existing skill set? So to give you an example, uh, if you look at a country like Germany, you can see that there are particular industrial Cultures that exist as a result of uh, decades and decades of of a particular um, industrial base, and those those cultures mean that you have communities, that you have families with specific skill sets, industrial skill sets that relate to particular types of technologies. And at the same time, you've got a particular industrial infrastructure uh, in terms of the types of pipelines or factories or power generators that, that might exist. So those three things coming together, uh, an industrial culture, an industrial skill set and industrial infrastructure, uh, tend to make up the uh, the package of existing potential. And it's about stepping in and looking at those, those three characteristics and saying, well, what's What's, what's a reasonably close step that doesn't uh, necessarily involve um, completely flipping your industrial models on its head. Now Germany's done that by saying to communities that have uh, existed in, in coal dependent regions, for instance, saying you've got the ability to um, operate tools, to, to run uh, supply chains in particular ways, let's find ways to transition from our, our coal base to say building wind energy and solar or whatever it might be. And Australia has examples where we're doing exactly the same thing, particularly in the Low Latrobe Valley in Victoria. I've just seen an announcement that uh, in Gladstone, uh, the council has been working with um, various civil society, uh, First Nations, um, private sector organisations, Uh, and uh, particular groups that have expertise in transition and they've announced in Gladstone in Queensland their just transition strategy. And what that's doing is bringing together that smart specialisation approach to industrial transition, but doing it in a way that's inclusive and ensuring that all stakeholders are engaged so that we can then talk about a just transition.
0: Thank you. That's a really great example as well of of a a very sensible concept and probably has its roots in in a lot of innovation theory Um, and I guess acknowledging how far we have come through the Industrial Revolution and out the other side and and this seems like a really mature progress on top of that. Now, you just mentioned Australia there and um, some examples of the practices that we've been giving. I do think today was an important day for Australia at COP with the announcement of the nation statement. Could you give a little bit more detail on, I guess, firstly, what that is and are all countries doing it?
1: All countries are doing it. The national statements are essentially where the the national representative, in our case, Minister for Climate Change and Energy, Chris Bowen, give a, a short speech to the conference in the main plenary hall, laying out the key points that that country wants to make. Now, there's a lot of of work being done every day for three weeks during the, the COP by the negotiators in all of the small side rooms. The national statement is made by a minister or head of state and is really the high level overview of that country's position in regards to this COP. Now, Minister Bowen, yesterday in Australia's national statement, did not provide any new announcements around large-scale funding uh, or financing to either the Green Climate Fund or to uh, a loss and damage facility, but he made it very clear, as Australia has been making it clear, that key things are in place in our national policy approach, and those include First of all, a stable policy and regulatory environment so that there is clarity for organisations and investors going forward. And that goes to the fact that we've got emission reduction targets legislated, that the existing targets are a floor rather than a ceiling. And so the trajectory is to meet and beat those and to ramp up ambition over time. Other things that Australia is um, very clearly talking about is our our role both regionally and internationally. So there are funding announcements around support for the Pacific family uh, and our engagement with countries in, in the Indo-Pacific region. And that is very, very clearly stepping up. Um, Australia is, is hoping to host the next Asia-Pacific COP, which would be in four years from now. And so there's, there's a lot of work going on in that space.
0: As part of Australia's national statement, was there any particular alliances that Australia signed up to that you would like to comment on?
1: I think it's important that we take some of the big announceables at times with a grain of salt. It's very easy to sign up to global alliances and global networks and and make statements, Um, but this is not all moving consistently in one direction. And it's also the case that at this end of the the COP, there are um, a lot of uh, negotiations going on in terms of details of texts where there are some countries that are trying to um, arguably water statements down or to, to find loopholes. Now, it's, it's really pleasing to see that Australia is is not taking that kind of position in many respects. In fact, uh, John Kerry, the US climate change envoy, has asked Minister Bowen to step in and co-chair a particular work stream that is one of the more contentious at the moment, which is around providing finance for loss and damage to developing countries. Those countries that are suffering or have suffered most from the impacts of climate change and yet have had the least historical responsibility for it. So there is, there is a, a big question around how do we we get that finance to support those, those, those countries most impacted and the fact that Australia is being asked to lead those conversations makes it very clear that in many respects we are back in the tent when it comes to the conversations but also being recognised as, as being able to bring a mature leadership voice to those negotiations.
0: Sebastian, with approximately three days to go and hinging off those comments you made around uh, getting to the end, are you noticing a change in tone on the ground of people getting a little bit more desperate to finish things off? Are you feeling a positive sentiment? What are your predictions for those final three days at this point?
1: That's a great question, Katrina. I'm going to spend today and tomorrow, I guess, listening as closely as I can to some of the details of the negotiations, because as we've said, in many ways, this is the pointy end. My feeling is that there have been some really positive outcomes in the wider circle of non-government participants. So the business and industry NGOs, the bingos, uh, the, the youth groups, the the civil society groups there's 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 a lot that's been positive and some really good I think new partnerships and and clear indications of of great work happening in all kinds of
0: places. Thank you. You're listening to Katrina King and I have been speaking to Dr. Sebastian Thomas at COP27. Thank you, Sebastian. We've learned today a little bit about Australia's national statement and what that means, the alliances that potentially could come from that. But I think also importantly, you gave us a little bit of a Uh, terminology for a new framework and perhaps a blueprint for industry and investors to think about in terms of smart specialisation. And I like that idea of leaning on current cultures, skill sets and infrastructure to take the existing potential that countries have, particularly Australia with fossil fuel mining, to take those learnings and become more inclusive as we uh, pivot to more renewables. It wouldn't be a COP27 podcast without me asking you what your fun fact for the day was.
1: (laughs) Sure. Well, I've got a few, but um, I know that uh, one thing that I found surprising was that the pyramids used to be white. And I think um, that surprised and fascinated me when uh, when I, I read that. When the pyramids and the Sphinx were originally built, they were covered with a limestone paste, ah. so effectively like a chalk cement. And so when the pyramids and, and the Sphinx were originally built, were these bright, white, shining, extraordinary wonders out there in the in the desert? And so, if you try to imagine our view of them now, and then color them a perfect white uh, render, uh, and imagine what that would be like, I think that's a powerful image. And I found out as well that the Egyptians were the first to to have a twelve month calendar, uh, well before the Romans uh, turned around and did this. The Egyptians used to have. Uh, a 12-month calendar, 30 days in every month. And for the last five days every year, the Egyptians just had a long party. And I think (laughs) that's a great way to do things.
0: Well, hopefully post post the next three days of COP, you'll you'll get some downtime yourself. Um, It's been fascinating to hear from you today. And we look forward to talking to you tomorrow. Thank you. Thanks so much, Katrina.